Welcome back, everyone. Hope your break was good and you got to stretch, get a drink. It's a great panel. We're about to step into a new one. And if you've ever wondered what your brain is like on capitalism, we're about to find out. I would like to invite Jessica to the floor so she can introduce and welcome this panel. Thanks, Jason. Hi, everybody. Welcome. Thanks for sticking with us. I know some of you have been here a lot of hours with us this weekend, so thank you. Uh, my name is Jessica Munger. I'm one of the co-directors of Move to Amend. I use she, her pronouns, and I live in Southern Paiute land, uh, which is called Las Vegas, Nevada. Um, so thank you for the opportunity to talk with you about our topic tonight. This conversation will explore some of the impacts we suffer as human beings, as spiritual beings, as social beings under the harsh conditions and crises we find ourselves in. Uh, we're living in a lingering pandemic that can uh, be a brutal reminder that the government does not care about us at all and will leave us to die for the sake of global capitalism and maximum profits. We're living in an environmental crisis that brings traumatic experiences in the form of wildfires, oil spills, hurricanes, floods, and earthquakes and other results of the industrial degradation of the environment. We're living through political and social crises, experiencing state violence through an increasingly militarized police. We're sending our children to underfunded public school to learn to shield themselves from active shooters. Since it's Pride Month, I will invoke my queer elder, Freddie Mercury. This is ourselves under pressure. So I'm excited to welcome our three guests tonight, Drs. Daniel Lee, Gloria Wong Padunpat, and Leanne Barnes uh, to talk with us about these impacts. So I'm gonna read some bios first, so you know a little bit about who we're talking with tonight. Uh, Dr. Gloria Wong Padunpat, she, her, who lives on Southern Paiute land as well, is an assistant professor at the University of Las Vegas, Nevada. The centerpiece of her research focuses on mental health issues among marginalized individuals. Dr. Wong Padunpat investigates the impact mechanisms and individual vari variations in stress responses to microaggressions and everyday form of discrimination. She also examines the ethnic and gender differences in risk factors for different types of addictions. More recently, she has investigated the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic on the most vulnerable communities and the anti-Asian sentiments during the pandemic. Uh, Wong Padunpat's research has been published in the Race and Social Problems, the Journal of Counseling Psychology, the Behavioral Medicine, and the Asian American Journal of Psychology, among others. Dr. Wong Padunpat holds an executive position for the Asian American Psychological Association as the communication officer and outside of scholarly work. She loves to coach uh, hockey and advocates for women in professional sports. Uh, Gloria received her BS in psychology from the University of California, San Diego, and her PhD in social personality psychology from the University of California, Davis. Good to see you. Thanks for being here. Um, Dr. Leanne Barnes, she, her, who lives on Southern Paiute land as well, received her PhD in social psychology from UCLA in 2019. Her research looks at how trauma changes, how we empathize with others going through similar traumatic experiences, and how we can increase social support for people experiencing trauma or discrimination. Leanne also uh, collaborates on research exploring mental health outcomes and social support for people living with HIV. Leanne is an assistant professor in residence at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, where she teaches courses in social psychology, multicultural psych, and psychology of gender, and a seminar on the science of empathy. Uh, thanks for being here. Uh, Dr. Daniel Lee, 
He Him, who lives in Tongva land, is a veteran elected official, community organizer, and he currently serves on the board of directors of Move to Amend and Backbone Campaign, Mockingbird Incubator, and Clean Power Alliance. Daniel has a master's in social work from UCLA and a doctorate of social work from USC. Daniel is the current mayor of Culver City, California, and the city's first African-American mayor. He has also worked with the program director at the James Lawson Institute. He's worked in housing justice, myriad environmental issues and local campaigns. He's run for office more than anyone I know and has a lot of practical experience with the impacts of capitalism on people and communities. I wrote that for you, DJ, I do okay? Thanks for being here, Daniel. All right, um, so thanks again. Um, I've got a couple of questions for you and I'll go ahead and call on you in order just so that our time is maximized and then um, we'll keep the chat off while y'all are talking and then once it's time for Q&As, um, then we'll open up the chat. So as you're listening, feel free to write down questions um, that you have for our speakers later. All right, my first question is if you could just uh, talk a little bit about your work and describe an aspect of your work and how you see the impacts of capitalism on human behavior and wellness. So we'll start with Leanne, if you wouldn't mind. Sure, hi everyone. Uh, so with this question, I actually wanted to talk a little bit about students because I do a lot of teaching um, and I've seen a lot of impacts on students. I think I've seen a lot of uh, students be extremely overworked. Students, I think, more than ever are working multiple jobs, caring for family members while also trying to get their degrees. Um, they're feeling disconnected from each other and from faculty and from their education in general. Um, and I'm seeing a lot of mental health crises. You know, there's um, there are things that we can do as faculty when we see students struggling um, that we can implement uh, from the university. And I find I'm just needing to do more and more of those of trying to reach out for students in crises, students coming to me, um, just really, really struggling. So um, while that's broader than just psychology, I think it's important to kind of get a sense of where young people are at right now. Um, and it's concerning to see just the level of disconnect and, um, and crisis that they're in. Mm, thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah. Uh, Gloria, how about you? Yeah, I thank you. And thank you for the invite and such a wonderful um, introduction. Um, and also, I got a little stressed out as you were listening, uh, listing all the things that's going on in the world. So, uh, really, uh, I'll go. I'll go. I'll start with explaining um, my training in social psychology. Um, I have two research programs: one on microaggressions, which are everyday forms of discrimination and the stressful impacts of these everyday exchanges, and also. Um, behavioral addiction. Um, so that's not necessarily a hardcore substance use disorders, but um, gambling addiction, gaming addiction, and both of these research programs demand me to be a stress researcher. So the insidious impact of stress, and I've been really reflecting on for probably 10 plus years of like, what types of stresses? So when the topic of capitalism, I uh, 
came up um, and I've been really, I've always reflected on it, but thinking more directly and more intentional about capitalism and what type of stressor it is, um, really maps onto my, all my research programs on this slow violence, this, um, this idea of this ambiguous stressor. Uh, so I wouldn't categorize capitalism as a traumatic stressor, but um, would say that these are the this everyday wear and tear, chronic, unseen, invisible types of stressors um, uh, that has a different uh, effect on, on individuals, especially if the individual cannot see it and it's not visible and not even kind of aware. And I think that's like happening to our students, right, Leanne? Uh, these stressors are, are there. And uh, when we're not able to really pinpoint it and name it, uh, they turn inward. I'm the problem. Um, so that's one of my take-home points um, of this uh, slow violence and ambiguous stressor is that uh, when those things happen, and we see this in uh, research, when we're not able to name it and see it, uh, we turn inwards and we start blaming ourselves for why we can't be successful in a system like capitalism. Why can't we be um, uh, successful like as what we see on TV and all, all that. So this uh, really thinking about capitalism as this like this really hidden uh, stressor that um, th that is very impactful in our everyday and uh, real and I'm going to jump ahead a little bit and like how do we really get bearings on it, um, which is probably your uh, your your question number three. Awesome, thank you so much, Larry. Can you repeat the question again? Because uh, a lot of stuff came up and I don't want to say all of it. Yeah, absolutely. Could you talk about an aspect of your work and how you see the impacts of capitalism on human behavior or wellness? Sure, I I'll try to be very brief. Uh, I think with the pandemic, we saw how the lack of universal healthcare or single-payer healthcare had you know, deleterious effects, not just on the students when they returned uh, to school. Um, there've been a, you know, an uptick of behavior problems. Of course, there's been a lot more anxiety and depression uh, than we would normally see because students were separated from their friends uh, for so long. Uh, Zoom could only make up for so much, uh, but generally, and what I studied in my doctorate program was really around social determinants and some of the social determinants that make things worse for people from a mental health perspective are necessary tenants of capitalism. Uh, one is housing scarcity and having a housing market rather than treating housing itself as human right and work to make sure that people are at least housed in a sanitary manner. Uh, housing insecurity is one of the largest things that causes uh, adverse childhood experiences or ACEs uh, in young kids as they matriculate, which can cause academic problems, behavior problems, mental health problems, digestive problems, et cetera. Uh, but also with housing insecurity comes an uptick in domestic violence. Domestic violence or um, non-physical violence uh, in the house, which of course does not have a great effect on children or parents or anyone else who might be living in the house. But in my work with the James Lawson Institute, one of the things that we've seen quite a few times when we do nonviolent demonstrations or uh, walkthroughs of direct action 
is that there are people who have been traumatized uh, by police, uh, by advocating for themselves, by saying that this is, by exercising supposedly their First Amendment right. And for them, it's really hard to find a place where they can participate in direct action. And I think we're at a point in our country's history when it's more and more obvious that if things are gonna go back in the right direction, it means that a lot of us are going to be on the streets a lot more than we would normally be. But for a lot of people, that just can't happen because of past trauma, either from another incident that they had with uh, a family or friend or directly from police violence. In my work in the city council, and I've seen this before, uh, and I know this is a uh, common around California and around the country, uh, before the pandemic started, we had a housing homelessness crisis. And a very long time ago, when I was very active with Occupy LA, an unhoused friend of mine allowed me to interview him for uh, an article I was writing for Yes Magazine. And, you know, he said it very plainly. He's like, well, you know, I don't know if uh, a lot of people are mentally unstable, and that's the reason why they're unhoused, or if they become mentally unstable or develop a mental health condition uh, because of being unhoused, because it comes with uh, constant uh, degradation by our systems and by people individually seeing uh, it comes with impossible to meet deadlines in terms of having your ID, getting here and getting there. It comes with basically impossible tasks. And they're, they're, most people would blame themselves for the failure of becoming homeless and for the inability to not, you know, really get out of it. And I think that's harmful long term and it doesn't take into account the failures incumbent in our system, both of housing, health, mental health, and pollution. Uh, because uh, mental health is something that we don't talk about. I feel like if we spoke about it more, a greater majority, I do mean majority of people in this country would have some type of mental health issue, just as all of us have some physical health issue. But pushing things aside and not having that care provided to people, uh, both in a direct action context and a school context, uh, and when they find themselves on the street, really just makes it hard for people to see tomorrow or a way for them to really get to where they want to go and achieve their goals. And I think a lot of that is due to things that are required of capitalism, housing scarcity, uh, low wages, and the toxic stress that comes with all of that. Absolutely. Thank you so much. My next question uh, is maybe twofold. What, uh, or there's an option here. What are some of the psychological processes that are engaged when people are faced with struggles of surviving in this historical moment? Um, what, what's happening to us? <laughs> or alternatively, what are some social responses that occur when people are facing the desperation so many people are in this moment? Um, and how do you see people doing and acting as a response to this? Um, so Gloria, I'll start with you. All right, jumping around a bit. Um, okay, so I'm gonna answer this question, um, but I will first lead with when I saw this question, it did tap into my kind of righteous anger. Um, and it got me a little heated because one of the biggest critiques of psychology and the whole field is that it's so fixated on that individual. 
Um, so for instance, the idea of burnout, um, and I hear it probably every other meeting, and, I, and it's mostly coming from my end. Um, but even in that term, uh, it really focuses on that individual. And a lot of the models that we work with in psychology, because we're, we're at that level of analysis, is a disease model or the client as the problem model. Um, and this, is, this part is probably pretty basic. Uh, to you all, because you all are so uh, so much in critiquing the system, but we don't do that that much in psychology, and um, and it gets it, it gets dangerous because if we're not really pinpointing uh, what is wrong, and we're actually just pinpointing the individual, um, and that that individual is burnt, being burnt out, and how they can. Um, and not making those changes in a systemic level or even calling it in or even naming it, uh, that is very, very dangerous. And I feel like that happens with a, with a system like capitalism. Um, that is, the, again, the slow violence, the unseen, ambiguous form um, at that macro level. Uh, so I feel like psychology can do better at uh, really connecting with more of the social determinants. So what is at that, um, that social systemic uh, level, that macro level that has that effect on that everyday exchanges? Um, but I will answer the question uh, at that individual level and that goes with making it more seen and calling it, um, naming it. Uh, first step of liberation is being able to name oppression. Uh, so I really hold on to, to that. Um, when we're not able to name uh, the violences, we're not going to be able to deconstruct and understand it. Uh, so once we're able to do that, we're able to kind of protect our self-concept if we're able to externalize it. Um, and so uh, that's one of my big take-home points is being able to... Uh, be aware of it and to protect a uh, self-concept and um and really call out capitalism wherever we wherever we see it and i i feel like um a, a lot of people in this room are doing their work with really calling that out and transforming those spaces thank you so much and thank you for naming the the piece too about how so often it's siloed into like the individual response or responsibility um, and that this is a collective problem and probably a lot of collective solutions, right? Yeah, thank you. Um, appreciate that a lot. Uh, Daniel, uh, let me let me reread the question because it's a lot. Um, so, sure, what are some of the psychological processes that are engaged? Um, or what are some of the social responses that occur when people are facing the desperation of late stage capitalism in a moment like this? Well, I think it goes back to what I was talking about before, uh, toxic stress. Like uh, a lot of people are familiar with like uh, fight or flight or the notion of fight or flight. Uh, but when we are you know, engaged basically in late stage capitalism, we're in this permanent crisis where, you know, our flight and flight or fight, flight or fight or flight response is really just on permanently. And we're hyper aware. And, you know, that 
that wears on you. That really um, basically breaks down your decision-making ability uh, that has effects on your food and the way that you interact with people, both in a work environment, in a friend or family environment. Um, and, you know, it, it actually is a source of uh, sooner mortality for a lot of people. One of the big things that happened during the pandemic, I think, for two years in a row, is that the life expectancy uh, in the United States increased uh, for the first time in a very, very, very long time. We know that millennials are the first generation to live at a lower standard of living uh, than past generations. And that actually has, you know, a psychological effect. It's akin to imposter syndrome. Uh, millennials are basically told, hey, you get your degree. Well, you graduate from high school, you get your degree. Maybe you go to graduate school, you're gonna have it made. You've done everything right. And, you know, the onset thing is if you don't do all of that, if you do do all of that and you're not successful, it's your fault. Uh, and imposter syndrome keeps people from doing a lot of different things. But imposter syndrome in conjunction with um, $100,000, $40,000, depending on your race and gender, the average amount of student debt that you have changes. Um, but being shackled with that debt and that debt preventing you for, for 5, 10, 15, 20, there are even some boomers who still have student loan debt from trying a lot of the things that you want to do with your life really turns it back on itself and turns you in on yourself to make you think every reason or every moment of uh, a lack of success that I have is my fault. What is wrong? And a lot of times, some people have generalized anxiety or depression. A lot of people actually don't have anything. They're just sick with capitalism. Thank you so much. Um, Leanne. All right, well, um, Gloria, you stole my rant for the next question, but <laughs> about individual. <laughs> Uh, focus in psychology. Um, but for this question, I wanted to talk a bit about, so my doctoral research is on, uh, on empathy and social support. And so one of the psychological processes that I see impacting people is compassion fatigue, which has been kind of buzzed about a lot, but um, as someone who has kind of deep dived into that, um, it comes from Oh, sorry, I froze, didn't I? Cool. <laughs> it comes from this place of being constantly exposed to others' suffering. And that doesn't, that's not on the individual, right? We're in a space, both in our, our like societal space and our technological space, where we're bombarded. We receive news notifications, first thing we see in the, in the morning, if we access any sort of social media, we're seeing suffering constantly. And not only that, but um, there has been research done by some less scrupulous psychologists who've worked for bigger companies showing that, hey, guess what? People uh, respond more and engage more to negative information online. So let's tweak our algorithms so that people see more negative information. So they see more things to make them feel 
outrage. So we end up in the space where we're being fed constant information about other suffering. And another crucial piece about compassion fatigue is that it's not just exposure to suffering, it's exposure to suffering when you feel powerless to do anything about it. And so when you're just seeing constantly on your streams these terrible things happening, both sort of on the macro level of you know, like big news stories, and then on the micro level of individual people saying, you know, please for funding, GoFundMe campaigns because they can't afford their rent, because they can't afford, you know, treatments for people. It it starts to feel, uh, you know, people start to feel powerless, and so the response, the 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 response to compassion fatigue is to try to turn it off, to turn off your compassion, your empathy for other people. And so it looks from the outside kind of callous when people do this, but it's coming from too much of that. When people are sort of over-identifying and overexposing, being overexposed to this suffering, feeling powerless, then that tends to be the response. So um, I think that's one of the major things that I'm seeing is that, you know, when people sometimes seem callous to other suffering, it may not be that they actually are, it's just that they have cared too much without feeling like they could do anything about it, that now they just try to protect themselves, to truly protect their emotions to not, not do that anymore. So, you know, uh, there's, there's a whole bunch more that we can talk about when it comes to compassion fatigue and what to do about that, which again, I don't think it all should be on the individual to do something about it. Um, but, uh, you know, one of the major things is there's empathy where you sort of are sharing what someone else is feeling. And then there's compassion where you're more focused on understanding what they feel, but then thinking, what can I offer? And how can I help? And so uh, trying to shift more towards that side of it uh, tends to help reduce your feelings of compassion fatigue. Because if you're just sort of identifying, um, it becomes overwhelming inside of yourself more. Um, but also these uh, algorithms that sort of push more of that outrage on you and negativity on you, um, that needs to be addressed because that also really does not help this problem where people feel disconnected. And then helping people understand ways that they can gain sort of power, that they can respond and they can help others. Um, especially in this age of disconnect where, like Daniel was saying, people maybe not maybe aren't wanting to get out um, as much because of experiences that they've had. Um, so how can people be involved even when they're experiencing horrible depression or have had traumatic experiences when they've engaged in you know, public protest and things like that? How can people still feel like they have some sort of power to make change happen? Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, it's incredibly overwhelming, not just to experience what's happening, but then to re-experience things and everything that everyone in the world is experiencing, it feels like all, all the time, all day long. Um, so yeah, thank you for naming that. Um, my, my third question here um, is, uh, and after I, after we go through this question, we'll open up the chat. So if you have, uh, if you're in the audience and have had a question, um, get prepared to be able to put it in chat soon. Uh, what can psychology offer in the pursuit of a more just world? Or from your perspective, what are some ways that change can be enacted? 
Um, or uh, in a related way, what is some of the most important work resisting the harms of capitalism that you see happening now? So what can psychology offer? How can change be enacted? And what work is happening? That's really cool. So we'll start with you, Daniel. So yeah, when I saw this question, I pretty much assumed that I would just answer it in the context of what can uh, uh, mental health offer. Um, because I had heard from a number of friends who are, you know, just uh, individual psychologists from day to day, and they are adapting a lot more social work principles. And I think one of the things that a lot of um, jobs and professions that deal with people on a regular basis don't have that social work does is a code of ethics. Um, I think by speaking, by, by coming in with our own values, but then also um, speaking to the true values of what capitalism is, I think we can help people see change. I think for a very long time, a lot of people have, in, in our system, have basically said capitalism is responsible for all of the best things that we have uh, in this country. When you know, a lot of times it was collective research, you know, funded in a horizontal way that, you know, gives us some type of breakthrough or, you know, more empathetic systems that were created by people individually. And then, you know, those processes and those systems uh, given out. Um, when it comes to social work, we like to look at a person in their environment. And, you know, that's super basic, the biopsychosocial sort of framework. And, you know, we consider people's networks, people's support systems, people's um, personal skills, advantages that they have, uh, but also, you know, what are they dealing with? Are they, you know, a trans woman uh, who actually ha happens to be affluent, but is in a very conservative area, so probably doesn't have as much of a community network in person than they do online? You know, the, the solutions to some degree are different if we are only focused on the individual. I think, you know, we need to start thinking of things like housing, you know, like uh, having your basic needs met as mental health care, as the foundation from which we build a society that actually allows people to determine, you know, what the best thing is for them uh, to have, you know, really get mental health and to be able to participate. I think we need to give people the basics. We need to give people health. We need to give people health care as human rights and build upon that foundation and then listen to them when they're freed up from the chore of having to work all the time or from the chore of having to worry about medical bills or from the chore of having to work three or four jobs, have a side hustle. So they actually have the headspace to know what they want and how they want to contribute. But I think that really starts with us sort of reframing the narrative uh, and reestablishing a baseline of what people should get, uh, period, from any government, but especially ours. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, Leanne. Um, yeah, so this is insert rant about psychology being too focused on the individual. Um, <laughs> you know, there's so much talk about self-care and 
how do you increase your productivity, which is just incredibly frustrating um, how much of that is focused on the individual because it, it puts the onus on the individual to adapt to increasingly inhospitable conditions of our society, of capitalism. You know, oh, inflation has increased. Well, just how do you increase your productivity so that you can, you know, just increase that hustle, right? Um, and so that's extremely frustrating how that tends to be where we head. An area of research in psychology that I think is promising is research on preventative mental health, which really uh, speaks to what Daniel was just talking about. Um, you know, we, we know a lot about um, gene expression, right? And how um, the environment interacts with our genes. So a lot of times people, maybe they have like a genetic predisposition towards a mental illness, but it doesn't, come out unless they experience something traumatic that triggers it. And so how can we help people avoid experiencing those traumatic things that trigger it? There's a, to start there, prevent it from happening. And many of those things are things like Daniel talked about of, you know, providing for housing, um, you know, addressing things like domestic violence. Um, and I think too, looking more at uh, using psychology to look at effectiveness of collective actions. You know, how can we be most effective? How can we be most effective at, um, you know, implementing change of persuading others um, and of providing support to each other? And I think that there's also a responsibility that the field has um, to, to not sort of buy in um, to some of these things. So, you know, a lot of people in social psychology really think about things from these perspectives. I'm also a social psychologist, but then there are a lot of people from social psychology that go and work at Facebook um, <laughs> or work as in like jury selection, you know, using, basically using psychology for evil in my mind. Um, how can we both, how can we, you know, make people spend more money or how can we rig this jury the best way possible for us so um things like that we sort of have responsibility as a field to not do that and then to instead um be focusing our our research energies on on not just making it be about the individual but how individual and collective actions can be most effective yes thank you so much uh and gloria Thank you. And um, so I'm going to rewind a, a few minutes uh, because Leanne, you just uh, you really sparked something and I couldn't let it go. I was thinking about uh, whether or not to go off script. So I'm going to go off to just a little bit because that idea of compassion fatigue just really hit me. Um, and uh, just kind of personally, too. Um, a more a more transparency. I did a lot of work during the past two years on anti-Asian sentiment um, and the impact on the Asian American community and being an Asian American psychologist kind of at the front lines of uh, figuring out how to protect the community, how to uh, create healing spaces all the while being hurt <laughs> also and suffering and then also kind of talking to 
um, the leadership, putting together someone, something for Congress to really uh, think about. And um, we felt as an organization, Asian American Psychological Association, we felt overloaded, um, just to put it mildly. Um, and that compassion fatigue, real, that fatigue, I, I just felt so much. And then I wanted to share that process of how I got out of it. Um, and then naming um, that stressor, because Leanne, you talked about it, like just threatening everything <laughs> uh, you are, uh, your self-concept, your community. I felt that. I felt a threat from every single angle. And honestly, I still feel it. Um, but then us understanding stress and how to work out of that stress. So there's different pathways. One, seeing the stressor as a threat, as a complete threat of your identity, um, of your existence. And then there's this other pathway of seeing it as a challenge. And that's where I feel a lot of people should go. <laughs> um, because if you are constantly under threat, you're gonna have feelings of hopelessness and helplessness. If you see it as challenge, there, there's more possibility of being empowered, a more possibility of feeling that you can make those changes. Maybe not the huge change, but small changes. Um, so that is what I wanted to also um, uh, bring to the table too. There's different pathways of stress. So uh, the next time you feel a stress stressor, even if it's not capitalism, um, the next stressor comes up, uh, give yourself a moment. Is this threatening? How do I change this process, this cognitive process to make it, make me feel like it's a challenge? And I feel like a lot of people in this room are constantly threatened by capitalism and constantly choosing it to challenge them, to show up to spaces like this, um, to educate, ourselves to make um, make those transformative spaces. So my last point, which is not a, which is very scripted out, I have three main things to uh, to talk about in terms of my work in microaggressions and our next step in the field of making spaces more inclusive. Um, so kind of uh, not opposite of microaggressions, but um, where we see the field moving. So uh, three main things for making intervention, making the invisible visible. So the whole uh, slow violence, making um, naming that, making the slow violence of capitalism visible um, and bring it into discussions uh, outside of spaces like this. What spaces do you have uh, accessible to and transforming those spaces. And I feel like I bring that up, I share a lot of feminist spaces. A lot of men come in to those feminist spaces and kind of center um, uh, whether it uh, intentionally or unintentionally kind of recenter it on the, the perpetrator. And when, the, when we reflect on what are the fixes we can have for our allies is that it's not necessarily to uh, center it in those spaces, but to go out um, and have access to your own communities and transform those spaces to be feminist spaces. Um, so 
go out there and transform uh, spaces to be anti-capitalist. Um, so educating the perpetrator and then disarming and dismantling. Um, I'm molding those all into to one. And there's two ways to do this. One with a lot of care. <laughs> uh, perpetrators uh, need a lot of care. Or more radical, <laughs> taking it all down. So <laughs> those are kind of like, I feel like the two choices. Um, and I'm not gonna say which one uh, works better than the other, but if we're going to work with the uh, perpetrators, uh, those in leadership, it does need the utmost care. Um, and if we're not ready to put in that effort for care, then there's other radical ways we can do it. And then I'll let your imagination take those. Uh, and then creating community, which again is here, uh, because this is super hard work. To take down a hegemonic system is super hard work. And done in isolation is not sustainable. That's what I, I found out. In radical work, um, it's not sustainable to do it yourself. And we need to create community. Um, and very intentional, like how we create community and how we create community that lasts. Um, so taking that energy from today and how do we make it last a week or the next day, taking all the energy from this conference that a lot of people put a lot of work into um, and planning. Um, and then where is it gonna uh, go next? Where are we going to place that energy? And we, uh, we learn about that in psychology and science. Um, the energy doesn't go away. It either goes dormant or it goes somewhere else. So let's put it in somewhere else. Don't, let's not make it dormant. Let's put it in somewhere else. And where is the next step? And don't get overwhelmed with all these different steps. Just a little homework assignment. One thing that you're going to take away, one thing that you're going to change. And I feel like that is, that excites me. That's, that's exciting about uh, spaces like this, because if I imagine that everyone, those 48 people in here doing one little thing, and I'll do that myself. Um, whether it read a book or have a conversation or, um, or even do a little bit of self-reflection and self-care, um, that's going to, that's going to make those changes. Even if it's small, it, I, I feel, and I believe that if we keep at it, the changes are going to amount to more. That excites the hell out of me too. Thank you so much. That's wonderful. Um, I really appreciate you all uh, bringing your energy and solutions and analysis. Um, thank you so much. We're going to open up the chat now. So if you haven't already um, articulated your questions for these folks, you can do so now in the chat. Um, thank you. And we already have a couple that came in so we can get started as others are coming in. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read. Uh, well, actually, here's one from Howard. So we'll start there and then I'll, I'll insert mine if there's time. This is, have you looked at Catherine, Kathleen Bowles uh, on the psychology of consequences of money? It is a study of the effects of our debt-based money system and implications of the care-based money system, which we propose at monetaryalliance.org. Awesome. Yeah, that, thank you, Howard. That relates a lot to the conversation, the transition from the monetary solutions panel that we had right before this into this, they're all related. And as these speakers pulled out, right, these are not um, 
these are economic problems and solutions. These are group problems and solutions um, and not something that each individual can buy their way into or out of. Um, okay, there's one question that came up here that I'll just go ahead and, and give to you now, which is, um, can you talk about some of the impacts of not only capitalism, but a global pandemic and associated social isolation? Um, you touched on this a little bit, um, but if there's anything else you'd want to say about the increased isolation that's really happened over the last few years. If anyone feels inspired. I'm going to read a second. I can answer it. Because oh, um, yeah. I'm doing a whole lot of surveys um, on the impact of pandemic. Um, and so behavioral, I, I look at gambling and I look at gaming. Um, and the long story short, um, and I look at uh, well-being, people are not good. Uh, and people are clocking in at really high numbers that we're all only uh, tapping into clinical, like uh, clinical depression um, at like 50, 50 60%. Um, and we're, the mental health care system is also very much overloaded right now. It's so hard to even land a therapist. Um, so, uh, so there is a disconnect, um, and I don't have I don't have fixes, but uh, there is the, the pandemic has definitely played a role in isolating folks, and also um, uh, and a negative impact on their well being. And I feel like that's understandable, um, but the numbers are alarming. And as a behavior, uh, as a researcher looking at behavioral addiction and looking at different industries that um, not only were successful, but also preyed on um, uh, folks' isolation and uh, well-being are the, um, are the gaming industry and the gambling industry. And I don't know uh, who I'm talking to in here, so I do feel myself being um, a little bit hesitant um, a lot of my work, I, I do a lot of work on problem gambling and problem gaming, um, which uh, a lot of the big casinos don't really like me uh, using the words problem gaming, uh, gaming and problem gambling. Um, so I'll stop it there. I would just <laughs> say that it does have a, a lot of impact um, to well-being and also um, people reaching out to um, kind of neutralize that isolation. Uh, a lot of the, what we see in the uh, cycle of addiction is boredom and then when life it gets too hard. So uh, two very big things that broke people right back into the cycle of addiction um, are uh, boredom and then when, um, the existence is, uh, there's a lot of pressure and responsibilities and they want to do that escape um, from reality. Yeah, existence is hard and people are bored. That This really does seem like a, yeah. I wanted to add, um, I think this is sort of 
a silver lining. I don't know if that's quite right, but I am noticing more younger people naming it. Like Gloria was talking about how important it is to know and recognize, you know, what the problem is. And maybe they're not necessarily always connecting it to capitalism, but they are able to acknowledge like I am depressed right now. I am having a mental health crisis right now. Um, and, you know, I think that's, that's a good change that I'm seeing that they're at least recognizing what's happening, naming it and reaching out to someone and asking for help or, you know, or even just being saying my assignments are late because I had a total breakdown and, you know, I have a horrible anxiety. And so, um, you know, what to do with that is sort of where I struggle because, you know, I often, um, I want to encourage students to, to receive therapy. Well, more and more, there are apps out there, like, for example, BetterHelp, right? Uh, there's, there's apps out there where you can get therapy and they're being, you know, promoted by popular celebrities like Demi Lovato. And you're just providing your data to people who are selling your data. Um, and so it's, it's frustrating because I want to really encourage students to get help, but uh, the two main places that are accessible to them, which are apps and school, don't feel safe anymore because also um, universities can have access to your charts and that can come up if you ever have a legal issue with the school. So um, it's good that they're recognizing that there's a problem, but it's hard to find a place for what to do with them because of the way that um, capitalism is sort of even infiltrating these fields like therapy. Yeah, and I would just add that even before the pandemic, uh, social isolation was a public health crisis. Uh, the pandemic really just compounded things and really underlined how much of a crisis it is for people. And a lot of the people it is a crisis for are either older people on a fixed income or younger people or middle-aged people who just work a whole lot of jobs and don't do anything else. Um, they don't have any social interaction. You know, they're if they're into sex, their sexual activity is low. Uh, they don't have, they don't do a whole lot of things that just sort of make you naturally healthy, um, which is pretty much just being around other people. Mm. This seems to be a major theme that, that I'm pulling out here. Yeah, thank you all so much for that response. I'm seeing some responses with some books uh, in the chat. So thanks for that. Um, anybody who's making suggestions. Um, there was another question, um, and this was touched on a little bit earlier, but there's a lot of talk about self-care in this moment in history. A lot of times it's paired with consumer solutions. Can you talk about this and what self-care can look like outside of the confines of capitalism? Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Uh, this is such a frustration, you know, that, that so much of it is about using a bath bomb or, <laughs> you know, buying yourself a face mask and that's not actual self-care. So like Daniel just said, you know, the, one of the best forms of self-care is actually just social connection um, and genuine, meaningful social connection. Um, and actually someone just posted uh, something I was going to bring up, which is the book, How to Do Nothing um, by Jenny O'Dell. Excellent book, which addresses this, you know, what, is, what does self-care look like when 
you, you know, outside of this idea of consumerism and capitalism in terms of how to take care of yourself. And some of it is, is hard, um, you know, in terms of reorienting yourself away from some of these things that aren't as good for us. You know, when we start doing the doom scrolling on social media, it's really hard to stop doing it. Um, but that is a form of self-care. If you put a time limit on your phone for how long you can be on social media, that's self-care. <laughs> and uh, when you notice yourself doing that and turn that off and instead maybe call or even just text a friend and say, how are you doing? We should catch up. That's a form of self-care. Um, so those are some things that I think are actually don't cost money, <laughs> uh, just connecting with, with friends and loved ones. Um, but self-care is often this sort of like, I think part of the reason that consumerism has become such a huge part of it is that that feels like the easy solution, right? To like, I don't feel good, I'm gonna spend money on a fancy coffee or a face mask, things like that. Um, we need to be aware of ways that self-care maybe aren't as comfortable, but are better for us in the long term. You know, uh, things things like I I I hate it when people always suggest exercise to fix your mental health problems, but you know, <laughs> uh, taking some time to to walk in nature absolutely can can feel can feel better, even if that means you have to turn off the video games or something. Sometimes playing video games can be your form of self-care. Sometimes turning them off is self-care. So it's really about having that like awareness of where you are at in yourself and like what is, are you doing this thing because it actually is helping you or because you're avoiding something else that you don't wanna deal with that by avoiding it, you're making that thing worse. Uh, so, a few different options there. Well, and if I can just jump in, one of the things that more and more people are talking about from an organizing perspective is just community care and trying to take it from just being about self, but like the physical and mental health of a community. And a lot of that depends on whether or not there are actual resources in the community that people can utilize for free. Like, are there free places for people to just meet? Uh, to establish what's good about the community, what's bad about the community? Are there places for people to express themselves like artistically? Um, and are, you know, are there mental health resources in the community? Uh, a lot of times there are mental health resources on paper, whether that be, um, you know, as part of the Affordable Care Act or as part of, you know, certain state provisions. I know California has done a bit more, uh, but when you actually try to access those services, they're time limited and it's you know, eight sessions or 12 sessions forever. And then after that, you should be cured. Um, and there's no provision for ongoing mental health care. And what Leanne spoke about before, which was a, also a big part of uh, my, my doctorate thesis, preventive mental health care. Um, because, you know, if, if, if people are going through crisis, but they already have a system and a network set up so that they know where to go and how to deal with it, if they are in a crisis, they can better handle the crisis. It might still be horrible, but it, it'll be easier to manage. And if we think of, you know, self-care as community care, then we look more for community solutions and community resources rather than always putting the onus on the individual. 
Yeah, I'm going to just build on those points too. I feel like when it comes to care, there are all these different levels of care. There's micro levels of care every day at the individual level and uh, community. Um, And I feel like I critique individuals so uh, at the individual analysis, but I'm okay with it uh, for self-care because I feel like what happens with cap when capitalism gets um, in the conversation, capitalism tells you how to take care of yourself. Um, and I don't trust that. Uh, so it has to, I, it does have to come from the individual. So if a mask is not going to help you uh, uh, do a self-care uh, event, then um, it has to come from what are you doing too much of? Um, and uh, I love the doing nothing because I, I feel like that is also radical too. And it really just like kind of punches capitalism in the face is that um, that system needs us to be productive and needs us to be efficient. And we have created technology um, so much so that we can do all the things all the time and uh, there's like a never ending, let's do more, let's do more. So uh, when we do more things, I, I constantly ask myself now, what am I going to do less of? If I create this, um, uh, this algorithm that can answer emails really quickly, um, what am I going to do less of? Um, and how am I going to spend my time and not have it fill up with other things that I'm, that's going to make me productive? Um, and the f- bring it into a clinical and counseling setting. Um, the first question uh, when client comes in is, "What brings you here today?" Um, so, as as a cognitive behavior therapist, so uh, as a cognitive behavior therapy's approach. Uh, it begins with the individual and changing the thought process. So uh, reflecting on what is actually causing me distress. Um, Because sometimes we don't do that deep reflection and we just, we're we're kind of confused about, well, I'm just all stressed out. But I'm not not really sure where that stress is coming. But once we're able to pinpoint it, then we're able to be more direct. um, We can directly communicate with it. Well, I'm writing down some tips right now. Thank you. <laughs> That's fantastic um, and and so useful and um, applicable. So thank you all so so much. Um, there are a lot of resources in the chat here. Some stuff that Gloria gave to us to back up um, things that were said here. Um, there is a couple of other questions in the chat. People are very excited about this. But since we have two minutes left. Uh, what I'm going to say is that if anyone has like a final word or any points that you didn't get to make, uh, please feel free to take a moment to do that. And then I'll, I'll thank everybody and then let you know about the, the care circle that's happening appropriately right after this event. So um, anything, anything you want to end on? Well, I, I just want to say in, in addition to community care, um, I think it's also good to have places of community healing, even though I skipped a bunch of vigils last night because I'm not a fan of vigils. Um, But I know that they work for a lot of people and there is, you know, a lot of horrible things happening in our country and in our world. And having just sort of a regular place to go to, 
to process and or to find support or to just laugh uh, is a very positive thing that um, I know a lot of social workers don't do until they realize they need it and there's a group of social workers, but a lot of organizers don't do enough. And I think that's, you know, a, a great way to keep us in the place where we have the internal resources to continue to move forward and continue to work on the things that we know need to get done. Um, I'll just say that I um, am really grateful that this space exists and that this conversation happens. Um, you know, I think so often, as we've talked about, psychology is focused on the individual and a lot of social movements are focused on systems and we both kind of need each other to, to see the whole picture of how we can enact change. So I'm glad this conversation is happening and thanks for having me. I echo everyone and then I'm just gonna put my email in the chat um, if anyone wants to continue any um, discussion or um, that's that's my homework assignment for, for today is sharing my email with everyone. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you, Gloria, Leanne, Daniel. Thank you so much for being here um, and all of you who are here uh, to listen. It's five o'clock. I'm going to turn this over to Enabel to tell you about the care team uh, for this evening and uh, I'll let you three go. Thank you so much for being here. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you, everyone. That was an amazing panel. Um, I'm Ina Bell, we typo, and I'm part of the care team of this radical gathering. As we just explored in the last panel, we shouldn't have to do this alone. And so we're trying to change that pattern by making this sharing circle space available tonight. Even just hearing about trauma and all the ways our communities are struggling is hard for us to hold even from a distance. And so understanding that the care team is our events support for us as a collective, uh, we will continue to be available for one-on-one -on -one connection throughout the duration of the Radical Gathering tomorrow. Uh, our on-call team members are trained or affiliate healing practitioners of the Trauma Response and Crisis Care Movement Healer Network, Track for Movements. And uh, in a moment, we'll start the care team uh, radical sharing circle, but you do need to um, register for the link to hop over there. The link's in the chat. We're going to do some grounding and sharing. So uh, please join us. And otherwise, we'll see you tomorrow. And I'll pass it back to, does Jason need to say anything? <laughs> okay. I'm here. I'm here. <laughs> Thank you. Well, what a day. This has been amazing. All of you have been amazing. Thanks for hanging in here with us. I know my brain is full right now. I'm going to shake that out and absorb it. And I'm excited that we get to do this again tomorrow. And I just dropped into the chat um, the start time tomorrow, um, 9.30 Pacific, 10.30 Mountain, 11.30 Central, and 12.30 Eastern. Um, we have great 
topics to continue this thread tomorrow that include housing justice, that include corporate power resistance, um, abolition, and legal defense. So please join us. And if you enjoyed any of this tonight, any of it, please share it out to your social networks of what you enjoyed about it and share the, the link for folks to register so they can join in on this. Um, even if you don't want to share the registration link, just share about what this meant for you. If, it, if, if you were inspired, if you gained new knowledge, anything that came up for it, just share it out. Because again, we're building this community together. And as we've heard in the last panel and all the panels before this, the more we're in conversation together, the more we're cultivating connection and community, the better chance we have of cultivating the world that we all deserve. So share it out, have these conversations with your family members, with your social networks, at your job, with your friends, with everybody. Because as we said at the beginning of this, together we're smart as hell, or individually we're smart as hell, so I mess that up. Um, but together we are geniuses. So let's go out in the world and be geniuses together. So thank you, thank you. And we will see those who will join up for the care circle at the care circle. And we'll see the rest of you tomorrow. Thank you.